just the empty one first. And uh, I just Thank want you. to announce today that... Uh, and the full one. <coughs> that Merv and Edna Paul are celebrating their 67 wedding anniversary What we learned last week is that God today. is truth. God is perfect. God is love. And so when he created the world, he made it perfect. You know, the day that you guys committed your love to one another, I wasn't even thought of. of God. He created but, uh, a many beautiful congratulations. world it's so wonderful full of goodness and full of love. He created such a people in his own image. And and people had a perfect relationship um, so with God. In fact, it was um, all good. just want to share with you that Sue and I have literally just but come then back from Auckland. We had to shoot down on something uh, happened. Thursday, late he Thursday afternoon. He um, created Adam and Eve, and, her and he gave them husband, who she married all the June, fruits of the garden because of the lockdown and everything. And it he was, had uh, fellowship with them. It was a pure a relationship. On, on Friday. But he said, there's one and, uh, tree that I don't want you to eat from. Came along and so if you eat from that tree, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. What happens when you tell this morning to say, that my niece in Australia has just got engaged. So it really right. is a summer well, of love. Well, what happened was Adam and Eve um, And as you know, we're doing this series called voice. The Summer of Love. Um, this is all from the book of 1 John, thought, um, hmm, in which we are trying to redeem good. the 1960s name, The Summer of Love, Maybe uh, that was coined for the anti-establishment hippie okay. movement of free and love, as soon as social they concern, it, and counterculture. What happened to God's creation was... It was free spoiled. For all. We're redeeming it because and not John only was, was the it spoiled from Jesus Adam and Eve, and it spread Jesus throughout the whole creation. He was writing their this letter children and down uh, through the ages. The people and the world that we live in, and the hearts of people, reminding them of some of the doctrines of the Christian faith, cut off from because God. Because you will have noticed and that is the world um, in that, that we live in. That folks. Some people had left. It is a world actually left controlled by the evil one. John says at the end of his letter. He now says last this, week we looked at the one whole John world is under one, the sway and of we the wicked one. Three heresies um, that were world. threatening to derail the church. Now people and to dilute it. And of course, people try all sorts of things to explain why there's badness Christ. in the world. And what I want to do is I want Some to people say, last week's message. Let me find by it. Asking Elliot to come up, and he's some people help me say with a little demonstration. Come on up, Elliot. I am not a sinner. I'm a good person. Thank you. They're really saying, I'm moral. But the thing is, morality doesn't change a stained world. Other people say, oh, if I go to church, God will be pleased with me. But going to church, as good as it is, doesn't remove sin. It doesn't remove it. Some people say, oh, there are other ways to God. There are lots of other religions. Let's try those. But the problem is none of them can clean the sin of the world. Some people say, oh, look, if I do more good than bad, God will be pleased with me. There are some religions that say you have to have more pluses than minuses. And there's a feeling in us that if we do good things, God will overlook the bad things. But God can't overlook bad things. Some people say, ah, oh, there really is no God. It's a figment of the imagination. There's no God. It'll be all right. It's okay. Drink and live life and be happy. You'll be fine. But that doesn't remove the sickness of the world. So God had to do something. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross. And when he came into the world, he died on a cross to clear up the sins of the world. He came to purify us, to take away sin. 
And it's only through the cross, this is what John is saying, it's only through the cross that you can have your sins forgiven. There's no other way. There's no other way. We sang that song, you know, um, I trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, cornerstone. That is our hope. And so that really is what John said in his first chapter. Now the thing about this is that John said this, it's one thing to know that Jesus came in to forgive sins. It's another thing to appropriate that, to actually engage with that and to acknowledge that. And that's why we have confession in church on Sundays. But I was reading a book lately by John Stott, and John Stott was saying that we need to be very particular about what we confess. We need to be really honest with God and tell him exactly how it is, what we're struggling with those weaknesses, those addictive habits. We need to confess them to God, and then God has the power to purify and forgive. And it's only through the cross. It's the only one. Thanks, Elliot. Would you like to push that back there? Thank you. Let's give Elliot a hand. Thank you, Elliot. I told Elliot when he's a teenager, he's going to be doing that demonstration in church. He's going to be proclaiming the gospel to his friends and to young people. So today we're looking and we're building on 1 John chapter 1. And Jesus, uh, John is saying to today, what does it mean to be a Christian? We've now looked at the, um, if you like, the heresies. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? And he says this, whoever claims to live in him must live or my version says, must walk as Jesus walked. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. We are called to become like Christ. We are called to become more Christ-like. Now, in this second chapter, having pointed out those heresies, he tackles the subject of true Christianity. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It's one thing to denounce the heretics, but it's quite another thing to give direction for the Christian life. John's guidance is really helpful for all of us. It's a course based around his own relationship with Christ. He walked with Christ for three years. He experienced Christ every day. And he said, I've walked with the one who loves. I'm learning how to love. John was never perfect. He never admitted he was perfect but he was learning about love. And he watched Jesus. And in this chapter, there are about four tests that we can talk about today. These are four tests, if you like, that um, we can put ourselves up against and say, well, how am I doing in the Christian life? Is there room for improvement? It's not that we um, can um, you know, say, I'm a better Christian. It's more, how can I become more loving? How can I sin less? And that's somebody I was reading the other day saying, it's not the pain of Christ on the cross that we're sorry for. It should be the sins that we committed to put him on the cross. That's what should make us sorry. That's what should make us sad. Because that's why he went to the cross. And so he writes to three groups of people. He says, dear children. He's really talking to new Christians. When he says, dear children, he's talking to new Christians. When he talks to young, it says, uh, young men or young people, 
um, he's really talking to those who are growing in Christ-likeness, who are learning spiritual warfare and overcoming sin and getting out there and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And then he talks, he mentions fathers. He really means fathers and mothers. He meant it's a generic word. He's talking here about people who possess that depth and stability in the Christian life where they show fruitful works of walking with Jesus um, year, you know, day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year. It's that kind of through the family type picture. So it's really for all of us here today, wherever you stand on that spectrum. So the first test is this, it's the doctrinal test. In verse 22, it's the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, as we've demonstrated. Because John says, who's the liar? It's he who denies Christ. He denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the liar. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And here, John is really underlining chapter 1. He's saying the first step, if you like, of, in the Christian life is to acknowledge who Jesus is. You know, we've got a lot of heroes and role models in our world. And however good and inspiring they really are, nothing can compare to Jesus. Jesus is head and shoulders, or should I say heavens and galaxies, above all others. John goes on to say that whoever denies that Jesus is God's son is in fact antichrist. You've heard the phrase the antichrist. Well, antichrist simply means someone who denies that Jesus is Christ. A person is either for Jesus or against him. There's no middle ground. There's no, oh, not sure about Jesus. That's wishy-washy. You've got to make a decision. You're either for Christ or you're against him. It was very interesting. I had an, a conversation um, earlier this week. A man um, was knocking on the door of a church. I happened to be here in the office. I went and opened it and got talking to him. He'd obviously a very well-traveled person, quite long hair and a bit of a beard and and so on and so forth, and we had an interesting conversation, and he got very quickly onto the end times, and he started to tell me um, that he had a master who he was following, and he was going to proclaim this message, um, all these prophecies that this master was sharing with him, and I said, well, obviously your master's Jesus, isn't it? And he said, no, it's a man in Asia who's got words of prophecy and knowledge, and I'm going around following him. So I said, well, if you're a true Christian, Jesus is your master. Oh, no, no, my master lives in Asia. And this is the first test of a true Christian, a person who believes and can say at the top of their voices that Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of God. And it's not ashamed to walk down through the streets of Whangarei to say, Jesus is Lord. That's the first prerequisite. The second one is the moral test. The moral test is obedience. Obedience and the lordship of Christ. John says we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And then he goes on to say towards the end, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. 
As for you, the anointing you receive from, you, from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you because the anointing that is within you will teach you all things. So if someone says, comes to you and says, um, is this a sin? <laughs> My answer is, have you got the Holy Spirit? Ask him. He'll show you straight away. That's why we need this book too, by the way, because this, the, 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 book, the Holy Book points out where we've fallen short and corrects us. Here John is talking about the acid test of obedience. Lord means leader, master, commander, and king. Jesus' life was characterized by a knowledge and a love for God the Father. He loved the Father. He was totally obedient, totally submissive, totally listening to what the Father would say and he would do what the Father said. Jesus got his marching orders from the Father through the Holy Spirit. Now, we hear him. How do we come to know God speaking to us? We come to hear him by his word, the Bible, and by his spirit, the spirit within us. This does require, and this is why we call disciples, a daily discipline of Bible reading and prayer and obedience. It's one thing to hear the Lord in your prayers, in your Bible reading. It's quite another thing to then put it into practice. I read last week, this last week, about a very interesting man called Charles Simeon who lived in the 18th and 19th century. And when he was uh, 20, he experienced a conversion at Cambridge University while he was taking communion one morning in his college. And he felt God was calling him to become a priest. So he started to train and was ordained five years later and became the curate of Holy Trinity Parish in Cambridge. He was incredibly unpopular. Some of his services were very disruptive and people would insult him in the streets. He was visited one day by a man called Henry Venn, who is quite a famous pastor, and his daughters. And upon returning home, his daughters remarked how harsh, how self-assertive, and how proud this young preacher was. Henry asked his daughters to go out into the garden and to pick a peach off the tree. So they brought him back a peach, and of course the peach was completely unripe. And the daughter said, why did you want us to pick this unripe peach, Dad? And he said, well, my dears, it's green now, but we must wait for a little more sun, for a few more showers, and in a while the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it will be with Mr. Simeon. Over the years, Charles Simeon did soften through God's transforming grace. In fact, um, he was, became the founder, one of the founder members of the Church Missionary Society from which Samuel Marsden and people came out to New Zealand to proclaim the gospel. But he had a daily commitment to Bible reading and prayer. Daily commitment. Somebody who went to stay with him said this was the secret of his great grace and the spiritual strength of his life. Not only did he have a huge impact um, 
through missions, but he had a huge impact through the UK. Later on in his ministry, people said he had a greater impact on Christianity in Britain than most bishops did. Charles Simeon. I love that song, um, Wonderful Grace. You probably know it. Wonderful grace that gives me the time to change, that washes away the stain that once covered me. It was God's grace that gave Simeon, Charles Simeon, the time to change. It's God's grace that gives us the time to change. If we, if we changed perhaps in one minute when we became Christians in our behavior, we'd probably explode. We wouldn't cope. But God in his grace gives us time to change. But there is a commitment that we need to understand. And that commitment is that we need to do something about our own spiritual growth. And that comes through Bible reading, through prayer, through Bible study, and through obedience, listening to the Lord and doing what he says. The third test is the social test. This is the test of loving others out of the love that Christ has put in us. John says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves his brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. John's letter is all about love. That's why we've coined this the summer of love. It's about brotherly love for one another. Out of the love that we've received from God, through the crucifixion, through the cleansing of our sins, for the inpouring of the Holy Spirit. Out of that love flows our love for our brothers and sisters. You know, John himself had experienced this amazing love, walking with Jesus. John said this, as the Father has loved, Jesus said this, as the Father's loved me, Jesus said, so I've loved you, he said to his disciples. And he said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. So John had experienced the love of Jesus right there. But you see, the Bible says we have an anointing within us. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. It is the other Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, who is within us, who never leaves us or forsakes us. And John is saying here, there should be no hatred in the church. If you hate a brother you aren't a Christian. And I believe that's why God puts us in fellowships. Because we're all so different. And it's God's laboratory, if you like, where we learn to love one another. So look around you today. Do you really know all the people in our fellowship? Are there some that could do with a little bit of extra loving? that you may have wondered about, people who come in and you've noticed them and they might require a bit of extra love. Could you give it to them? Could you encourage them? Could you support them? What about our children? You know, they've been without a Sunday school teacher now for quite a while. Has anyone noticed that or thought, could they teach our children? They say that the best Sunday school teacher is the oldest person in a congregation who will take young people seriously. Would you love them? They might start bringing their friends. You know, some children come from Christian families and they have Christian teaching at home, but others don't come from Christian families. 
They need Sunday school. They need somewhere where they're going to hear God's love for them. They need somewhere where they can be loved by others. I think this is a challenge for our church in this coming year. Are there some in the church that you don't get on with very well? What have you done to rectify that? You know, we've got to... um, God loves people of every race, creed, age, stage, station in life. He loves them all. And we are to do that too. We are God's new community. People should be looking at the church and saying, wow, that's how we want to live too. How are we measuring up on that standard? Maybe um, after the service you could find someone in the church that you don't know very well and go and have a coffee with them. Sit down and get to know them, get to hear their story. You know, we never know people's needs until we get to know them. You know, sometimes I get people who ring me up and say, do you know someone in the church who's got this need or that need? And, and rightly, we should know more about that. But my inner response as often is, well, why don't you ring them up? Or why don't you go and get to know them yourself? Do it. That's who we are. The thing about getting to know someone at church is that that could lead to maybe an invitation to come home for lunch one day or a coffee out or something like that. I love coffees out. I have them regularly with people. Great way to uh, spend time with people. I can see Joy smiling there. So don't worry, Joy, I'm, not use, I'm, I'm using reusable cups this year, all right? Okay, I've got one in my office. Somebody gave it to me for Christmas. The final one is the lifestyle test. Here's the fourth test, the lifestyle test. John says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. John finally reminds Christians that Just as Jesus' main focus was to do the will of the Father. Oh, Jesus, don't go to the cross. No, no, I need to do the will of the Father. No, no, Jesus, get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. Get behind me. I know the Father's will for my life. You know, John acknowledges that there's a real battle in the world. The world is attractive. It's attractive. There are all sorts of things to be attracted to. And John is saying here, if you get overly attracted to those things, you'll get drawn away from God's purpose for your life. Watch out. We need to view the people in the world with great love, just like Jesus did, who died for everyone in the world. But we need to hate the systems of this world. We need to be indifferent to the systems of this world. The systems of this world are power and politics, economics, materialism, commercialism, government, party spirit. We need to be indifferent to these things. It's not to say we shouldn't be involved in politics, in our prayer life, but we mustn't get sucked into flying banners where we're supposed to be flying the banner of Christ. You know, particularly in New Zealand, the god of mammon, which is materialism, 
is the big one. That's the thing we can get sucked into so easily. And lifestyle, it's got to be comfortable, it's got to be nice, it's got to be good for you. We can get sucked into that thinking so quickly. It wasn't nice for Jesus when he went to the cross. It wasn't nice for Jesus when his brothers and sisters walked away from him and didn't really want to associate. It wasn't nice for him. It wasn't comfy. We need to get back to that type of Christianity, all of us. Jesus made it clear that we can't serve God and mammon. We've got to choose between one or the other. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Commentator Dodd says this, there can be a tendency in the human psyche to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring as to what their real value is. When I read that, I thought, that's it for me looking at the world's thing. So in conclusion, friends, um, we're at the beginning of a new year, so what a, why not a challenge? To live the Jesus lifestyle. To believe with complete certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To embrace Jesus as our Lord, not just an aspect of our lifestyle. Oh, it's my lifestyle and Jesus. It's either Jesus or your lifestyle. Make him your lifestyle. That means being obedient to him, listening to him. Thirdly, to love others, especially the brothers and sisters in the fellowship, is to love one another out of the sacrificial love of Christ for you and for me. And finally, to break with the attachments of the world, just to make a break from them. Give something away to show you're not attached to it. And only seek to do the will of God the Father. Because John says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. I want to leave for you, if you are game enough to take one away. Um, this is not, it's called a discipleship self-evaluation test. It's not to be handed in or marked by anyone. It's just simply for you in your quiet time. I've left them in the foyer. There's a little box there which says discipleship self-evaluation test. This is from a guy called Ian Malins, who is a Baptist pastor, um, who is a Kiwi, who's done a lot of ministry in Papua New Guinea, and he's written some discipleship booklets. They're really excellent. And um, I I've myself have been greatly challenged by this and can see some areas of my own life where I can um, get to love God more. So I'd just like to leave that with you. And uh, Tom, I just want to hand back to you. Thank you.